Ephesians 4:17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and, and to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. In the passage we're looking at this morning, the Christian life is portrayed as a whole new way of life. Jesus has come and changed something, and that change is meant to then start to change everything. And so the book of Ephesians as a whole is encouraging any one of us. It's inviting us into this life and and encouraging us to rebuild a new life, to live this new life in the spirit. Um, And so the the picture that we get in this passage, and, and we looked at the same section last week, but I'm just going to look at different verses. Uh, But the imagery that we looked at last week, the description of the hardness of heart in verse 18, callousness of verse 19, it's as if if one of the problems of of being human is that there's this barrier, there's something, uh, a hardened heart, and it's keeping the life of God out. That's verse 18. We're alienated from the life of God. So God, whose life could come in and uh, give and, and cause flourishing, uh, somehow God is being kept out. And then the old self, verse 22, describes as corrupt through deceitful desires. Uh, so this hardened layer is keeping something in. And if there's something corrupt, uh, that corrupt something is, is spreading and making its way to everything. And so the picture here is we need something to break through that hardness of heart. And that's what the, the Christian story is. Jesus comes and he crosses the divide, renewing our hearts so that we're not alienated from God and we're not left to corruptive forces. And so in that way, what we're going to look at today is where in verse 24, we are invited to a different life that's characterized by true righteousness and holiness. So I want to talk today about three things, righteousness, holiness, and godliness, because godliness is the term I'm using to show how through the life uh, that's envisioned here, holiness and godliness are truly attained. So I'm going to begin with righteousness. Now, with both righteousness and holiness, these are things that are good for us. They're things that are desirable. They're things we should want more of. But the terminology feels very religious, churchy, Christian-y. And therefore, for some of you, hearing about righteousness and holiness, your first impression might not be these are things I long for and desire. They may be something that you feel there's a should, like, oh, if I'm going to be Christian, I should strive for these things. Or maybe there's some baggage because of your past. You may have grown up in a in a church that emphasized holiness in a way that burned you out or, or felt superficial or uh, felt like a bunch of rules. And so when you hear about holiness, what you think 
of is not something that's life-giving and healthy, but something that just wears you out and is, is destructive. Similar with righteousness, you might think of arrogance and people who think they're better than others. Uh, so as we look at, at um, the call to true righteousness and holiness and the concern that, that we're not seeing true righteousness, we're seeing corrupted versions of it or uh, versions that fall short, um, just to give different kinds of concepts to, to have a more generalized sense. And so I'm not translating the words, but the word righteousness, for example, uh, we're reading it this morning in English. The word right is right in the term. Um, we want to be right. There's an instinct in us. We want to be good. We want to be correct. We want things to come together in a way that it works, not to have something wrong with it. And so as a basic desire, wanting to be right, wanting to be upright, wanting to be good, uh, those are good desires. The picture here, though, of corruption and how that affects things, it takes good things and ruins them, or the good thing remains good, but there's some ruinous effect in how it plays its role. And so as we're looking at verse 24, true righteousness, the thing that we're dealing with is uh, the reality that, that there's always an imperfect kind of righteousness. So for example, when we want to be right, that by itself is not a bad desire, but one way we get that wrong is when we're actually not right. But the desire to be right is greater than the desire for truth, and therefore insisting we're right forces the bending of other things to conform to your vision of what's right. Uh, and that actually could become quite problematic and harmful relationally. If you're insisting you're right and bending everything towards aligning with your vision, that could be damaging. But often it's not that we're aware that we're flawed or wrong and we insist on being right, but we really have a conviction that we're right. And sometimes we're deceived, but sometimes we actually are right. And that's good. Being right is good. Truth is good. Um, but then you can take a good principle like being right, but isolate it from other good principles. And therefore, insisting on being right doesn't always do the good thing that you desire it to do. Uh, an example of this, this week, the leadership of the church met, so our elders, our mercy team, our trustees, and you think, what, are the, what does the leadership talk about when, when they get together? And uh, on Tuesday, we talked about Bluey, the cartoon. That is uh, not, it wasn't on the agenda, but it was part of what we talked about. Uh, and so one of the leaders was sharing about an episode of Bluey called Grannies, where Bluey, who's about six, and her sister Bingo, who's about four, are pretending to be old ladies and cracking themselves up with all of the stereotypes of what older people do. Uh, but Bingo, the younger sister, at one point in playing this game, does this dance move. I don't know if it was just a thing from five or ten years ago, but flossing, sort of a... I don't, I'm not going to try to do it because uh, I'm going to prove the point that older people uh, can't do this move. So Bluey gets furious in the middle of this game that Bing, they're playing grannies and Bingo is doing something that old women don't know how to do. And so stop doing that because you're ruining the game. But Bingo insists that it's fun. Bluey gets more angry and then wants to uh, prove who's right. So they do a video chat with their grandmother who clearly can't handle the technology and everything is already going wrong in that. But as it turns out, the sum of it is the grandmother cannot floss. She does not know this dance move. So they get off the call and Bluey is right, 
But now Bingo's angry and she sulks and she goes off and doesn't want to play anymore. And then the question of Bluey's mother is, hey, hey Bluey, do you want to be right or do you want to have fun playing with Bingo? Uh, so in this case, you were proved right, but, but being right isn't necessarily reaching the ends that, that are more reasonable. A great lesson to have in a children's program, wouldn't it be wonderful if, um, if you didn't need to assume that once you're 10 or 12, you outgrow that. But if you look at political and social discourse today, how much of it is we're insisting we're right and some in very false and problematic ways, but in some ways that we're insisting we're right, but in a way that's not um, advancing truth, but that's causing division. And you think in any adult relationship relating to roommates, parents, children, um, but especially in a relationship like a marriage where you've made a commitment that you can't leave because at the end of the day, you and your roommate, you can move out. Um, uh, but, but this is the kind of thing that, that in nearly every marriage at some point, uh, an impasse is there because we're disagreeing on what's right. And wanting to be right is not a problem. And even if you have a competitive spirit and you want to win, that's not a bad characteristic, but it might, might not be the right characteristic for this particular situation. And so um, you can have a situation where you're the better debater, the, the more insistent, the stronger personality, and you feel that you've proven yourself right. But what is the ultimate goal? Is the goal to be right or is the goal to have a healthy relationship, in which case truth is important, but, but one being right and the other being wrong. Uh, you know, we train ourselves to think if I'm the one that's right, if I'm the winner, then everyone will respect me. So, so now I have a spouse that's angry with me and I have to deal with that, but I have the satisfaction of being right because presumably by being right, they're angry, but at least they respect me. They now see that I'm, I'm right, not understanding the dynamics of being a self-pitying person, that when you're the one that's wrong and you're humiliated about being wrong, you really sit down and say, I'm terribly wrong, but at least I'm married to this person who is so upright. Uh, instead, you think like, what's the problem with this arrogant, self-righteous person doing? And so therefore, whatever goals you think you're accomplishing by having proven you're right, odds are um, the greater, more important goals for that moment are being undermined. And so this picture of righteousness that we have um, in the Bible, on the one hand, um, there are very different visions of what it means to be righteous, and some of them are very problematic, and it's just obvious right away. But there are some that really insist on being right, but don't have the proper context for it. Jesus insists on righteousness in the context of godly character, in which case righteousness is a good and healthy thing. Um, but in the church and in society, we find that often we abstract it into simply wanting to be right. And I think this is important for us to be thinking about um, as a faith community intersecting with the world at a time when the world is becoming increasingly moralistic and bureaucratic. We're, we're defining the lines of right and wrong so sharply that we're moving quickly to defining who's right, who's wrong, and how do we separate from those who are wrong. Um, and what we're doing is we're not advancing justice, but we're using the language of justice to hide our self-righteousness. And then we're trying to impose our vision of what's right on others. Uh, and what we're finding is not um, that, that as a society we're growing in a greater knowledge of truth and awareness. We, we find that we're uh, at danger of, of turning against one another with weapons. Um, 
there's a false righteousness or a certainly insufficient righteousness being presented and we can get pulled into a framework where inadvertently Christians get recruited to these other causes, not recognizing that the very terms of engagement are suspect. And so I think uh, as we're going into this um, election year where there's only gonna be greater polarization, uh, that we have to remember that we're committed to what's true and what's right, but, but actually we need to engage that with the other components of what Jesus is calling us to so that we're not undermined. Uh, and so uh, there's a false righteousness or an insufficient righteousness. We are invited to move our lives towards a true righteousness. Now, second, I wanna talk about holiness. So in a similar way, the term holiness may, may not be something that um, is a term that you would describe uh, a, lot of, a lot of your goals or, or desires, but when you think of, of what's the concept of holiness, most of us, if you're familiar with Bible's teaching on holiness, may think of perfection, because God who is holy is perfect. Uh, he's morally upright, there's no wrong in him. Uh, but but his, his moral uprightness, his perfection, is a function of his distinction, his being uh, set apart. And so one of the important teachings of the Bible is there's the creator and the creation. And so Ephesians describes God as being in all and through all. And so um, God is, is everywhere, but God is distinct such that the picture of a corrupted creation, a flawed creation of which we're all subject, does not corrupt God, but God remains holy. He remains set apart, he remains distinct. So when we speak of God's perfections as his holiness, we're, we're speaking of that as an outworking of God's being distinct, God's being set apart. And it's that desire that we have. Yes, there's a perfectionist desire in us to be without flaws, but part of that is tied to our desire to be unique, to be special, to know that there's something about us that matters. And maybe you wouldn't use the term holiness to describe that, but, but I think that longing is, is, uh, it overlaps with this vision where I wanna be unique, I wanna stand out, I want my life to matter. Um, and therefore, uh, when you think today, well, well as, as, a, as a society, maybe in your own social circles, um, what stands out as common and ordinary and what stands out as special and unique and how do you distinguish those? And it's not as clear how we do that these days and without knowing, um, we might be doing so in problematic ways. So in previous places or other times, uh, for example, Sunday was a day set apart. Stores didn't open and families in, in many homes would gather to have a special dinner on Sunday, especially for people that economically had to be very careful during the week. But you might have one meal that was a bit more extravagant and families would have it in a, there was the ordinary place, the kitchen table, and then there's the dining room, which is a place for special gatherings, and you have different plates uh, that, because they're nice and expensive, you don't want to use them every day because you could chip them. Uh, and so there's a special time and a special place and a special meal and a special gathering. Now, Manhattan, very few of us have the square footage to have more than one table. And so you may have thought that that 
kitchen counter would be where you'd have your ordinary meal and then your table would be otherwise, so you bought bar stools and then you realize that you never eat at the counter and all of your meals are you know, sitting on the couch or in one place and there's no separate plates because who has a separate cabinet for separate plates? And so we don't distinguish life in, in, in those ways. And yet there's still a longing for discerning what's ordinary and common and uh, what's special. And, and with the, not that I'm advocating to go back to uh, you know, a, a social practice that was common 50 years ago, but, but the, the, uh, the separating out of the day and the food and the table, it, it wasn't competitive. It was about one day being special and better than the others. Today, where we can't make those distinctions, when we're looking for what makes me special, unique, common, we do so in a way that means I need to stand out from the ordinary, which means I need to be better than. So what are the forms of, um, how do you know that you're uh, above average today? Well, there's an odd you know, thing that, that if you're academically motivated, if your grades are better than others, that's a way of not being one of the common people. And so we now have this phenomenon where everyone in a classroom gets an A. And so what are the implications of A being average? Have we um, made everyone to the bar of excellence? Have we changed the bar? It's the kind of thing to think about that in our desire, our insistence that I need to know that I am special, um, what are we doing to signal that there are common things and ordinary things? And somehow what we're doing is in, in the insistence that I matter, that I'm unique, it needs to be in relation to others. And therefore we're actually fostering arrogance, uh, division, which actually isn't necessarily healthy. It's not in our best interest. And so, so how do I find out if I'm special? One way is to look within, to look deep within. Who am I that makes me unique? But the problem is, if you're exploring the truth, any search within, uh, whatever asset you find, whatever unique quality is always going to somehow be connected or nearby some flaw. And so what, one of the things we do is we curate an external appearance of being unique and special and hope that we can keep the flaws contained or we just, the, the trend these days is uh, if the flaws are there, I'm just gonna invent a, a, a special, unique and, and uh, created identity so that I could present to the world with confidence that I belong, that I, that I value. Sometimes we, we realize looking within just isn't gonna work. If I could look outside to a group of people who have some distinction, who are unique, who are set apart, who are special, and if I could be accepted by them and identify with them, then even if there's something flawed with me, kind of like when zebras get together and there's those patterns, a predator in the back can't tell one zebra from the other because it's just this big mass of white and stripes. Well, so maybe you as a flawed person wanting to be unique and stand out, if I could identify with this institution, if I could hang out with these people, then I know that I'm set apart. I'm not common, I'm not ordinary, but I'm special, I'm unique. And there's something there that also doesn't seem to be working. Um, Jesus, in his vision to disciple, teaches people, he walks through the world and he shows people that there are some things that are ordinary, some things that are problematic, some things that by God's design are special. And so if you go to Matthew six, for example, he looks at, at food and clothing, uh, they're ordinary. So there's no problem with them. If you want them, that's fine. But if you're, if you're anxious about them, as Jesus' lesson there, 
Um, why are you so worried about these ordinary things? God knows about the things you need. So there's a lot in life that's good, it's valuable, you need it, but it's common. You don't devote your life to it. On the other hand, there are problematic things. And so in Matthew 6, Jesus would say, look at the religious leaders that are so concerned about status that they need a title and they need the respect of people. Uh, that's actually problematic. Don't pursue that. On the other hand, uh, store up treasure in heaven. There are things of eternal significance. And Jesus is saying, if you follow me, I'm going to show you what those things are. And so if you build your life on that, if you pursue those first, then your life will, um, will be special, will, will endure, will be unique, will thrive. And therefore, discipleship in Christianity is having Jesus teach us those things. What are the ordinary things that are fine that we need? but shouldn't become central things? What are the corrupted, dangerous things that we need to guard against? And what are the things that God puts as primary, as life-giving? And so it's that pursuit that we're invited to. And, and, and the book of Ephesians is saying, Jesus calls all of us into that life. It's a life that requires learning, but it requires more than learning. So here's the third thing I'm going to talk about, which is godliness. So verse 24 talks about true righteousness and holiness. How do we move towards the true, the real thing, the pure? And the vision of, of the book of Ephesians along with the Bible as a whole is that it happens through relationship. But part of the problem is we're alienated from the life of God. Part of the solution must be that, that the life of God is, is something we're connecting with and is working in us and that's where true righteousness and holiness become ours. And so rather than looking within and just asking me as a, as a isolated human being, what in me has value? What skill, what talent, what makes me stand out? Am I better than others? Or what in me will people appreciate? You know, deep down in, in the, the fibers of how God has made us, uh, from the very beginning, the book of Genesis in chapter one tells us that we are created in the image and likeness of God. And so our value comes from not something that we can achieve or something that we can do, but comes from the one who made us. And therefore, as we're looking through, because sin covers that, we don't see it with sufficient clarity and, and we're not finding within us what's of actual value. So what is it that makes a Gucci bag uh, cost a lot more than whatever um, the Amazon brand is? Is it that the Gucci bag is more durable or more functional? It's because of the name of the person who designed it and puts their label on it. What is it that makes a human being valuable? We're trained to think it's what I can do. Um, whereas the starting point is actually it's who made you. If you're connected with the creator of the heavens and the earth, there's a potential for a deep enduring value that should be unearthed and uncovered. And so if we're looking within, but we're not seeing godliness, if we're not seeing the reality of God in us, um, we need something that will clarify that. And then when we look outside of us, we should look beyond the institutions and the social cliques to the God who created the heavens and the earth. And that's the invitation, look to God, because as you're looking to God as an image bearer, then there's a connection between who you are most fundamentally in your value and what is most eternal and pure and upright and holy and enduring. And it's as people turn to God that then 
uh, true life, true restoration. And that's the picture of this passage of a former way of life that's corrupt, corrosive, uh, difficult, leading to death, or a new way of life that we're invited into that by the Spirit, we're growing in true righteousness and holiness. And if those terms don't capture your imagination, read the descriptions about moving from somebody who's trapped by anger to being somebody who's filled with love, somebody who's destroying things to somebody who's creating and building things up. The picture that we get is the kind of life that when we're living it, we realize this is right. I want more of this. And it's what we receive. And so in verse 24, we're told about a new self, a new identity, a whole new way of being, of understanding ourselves, of living in the world that's granted to us. It's a created self, not a self-created self, but created by the creator of all things. Verse 24 talks about the new self created after the likeness of God. Um, the Holy Spirit needs to do a renewing work of cleansing us so that what is truly good in us comes alive. And the creator who made us uh, has done a recreative work so that now his purpose is we are being made again after the likeness of God. That's true holiness. That's true righteousness because we're becoming like the one who is set apart, the one that is unique, the one that we worship and adore. In doing that, that changes us. And so um, we move from this alienation from the life of God to where Jesus breaks through that hardened layer. Uh, and the picture of Christianity is that when Jesus crosses the divide from his being holy and set apart and being in the heavenly realms, however we conceive of that, into this ordinary common world with all of its corruptions, Jesus, the, the nature of God is that he comes with humility to come among us, and yet Jesus remains distinct. He's here and yet without sin. And so his righteousness, his holiness is part of his character and story, and yet Jesus in his ministry touches the unclean and the suffering, and he hangs out with the sinners. And the ultimate purpose in this is in order to bring that transformation. And so what we find is that the Christian story is he winds up being crucified, and, and the crucifixion is this moment that's meant to, to transform and change everything, to, to break open the reality um, uh, of, of God and humanity. Uh, the picture that we get is that, that Jesus has lived the righteous and holy life that we are invited to live, but we don't because of our corruption. And yet Jesus dies the miserable death of judgment and punishment so that we won't have to. And so in that picture, there's, there's a, 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 an exchange of the nature of God who is holy and wise and gracious. And he is without flaws, but he's the one who will come and bring the repair. And what we're told is that what he did brings us forgiveness. And so our flaws or imperfections could be dealt with. What we're told is that now there's a righteousness that becomes ours, not because of what we've achieved or earned or done, but because of who we are no longer alienated from. And so Jesus, who's righteous, when we join with him, when we put our faith in him, when we walk with him, his righteousness is our righteousness. And that, therefore, it's natural that he calls us into a life of holiness. So theological terms we use for this are justification, uh, that we don't need to fear judgment because the judgment is now that Jesus has borne the, the punishment, the penalty, so that we can be declared righteous. We are justified by faith. It's, it's through grace by faith, not by works so that no one could boast. That's Ephesians 2. 
And yet we're also called into sanctification in forgiving us of our sins. We're called now to live a life where sin no longer characterizes or controls us. God is actually making us holy. We're in the process of being changed from one likeness to another. And so uh, the picture that we get here is that something profound has happened. Um, so <clears throat> Tuesday night, we talked about Bluey. Wednesday morning, an email came out from the person who said, you never let me finish the story. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're going back to Bluey and Bingo in conflict, where Bluey realizes my sister's angry with me, uh, and I'm right, but we are no longer having fun playing together. So what Bluey does is she calls her grandmother and she teaches her grandmother to dance the floss move. <laughs> um, what she did is, uh, you know, so Bluey was right. Their grandmother couldn't dance, but Bluey changed things so that through that change, Bingo could now be right too. And so that the, the restoration now we can play together. I was right, you were wrong, you're angry and you're suffering. But actually I did something, so now we're both right. And now we can play it together again. And the picture of Christianity is there is God and his holiness and perfection. And what potential and possibility in humanity and what do we do with it? Uh, because of corruption and alienation, we ruin everything. And Jesus comes in and says, I'm gonna make you right, not because I'm wrong, but because that's the nature of me, that I want more than just one being right and one being wrong, but I want the one who is wrong to be made right so that we can be together. That's what Jesus invites us into. And what we're told is once we enter into that life, then we're actually made right. And now we're invited to live this new life of holiness, to be people who pursue the truth and who walk with Christ. And so verse 23 calls us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. How is it that what Jesus did on the cross becomes a reality of our life? It's by the presence of the Holy Spirit that applies that work to justify us and that then over time sanctifies us. And so what we're told is we need spiritual renewal if we want true righteousness and holiness, if we want life with God. And so we can be renewed in the spirits of our minds, which means we need to think differently. Here's one example of, of how this can work out in, in your life. This week I was reading a memoir of an individual who's sharing about terrible choices he made, suffering he had in life. And one theme as he tells his story is there seems to be a baseline resentment. Every time something goes wrong, that's sort of where he winds up just stewing in resentment. And he's telling that story. Um, for some of us, that's the baseline. And there could be any number of reasons of why, of, of how we got here. But, but when something goes wrong, immediately we go into a hopeless place, we go into a self-deprecating place or uh, an accusatory place where, where resentment is just sort of our baseline reality. So then you're invited into a new way of life. Follow Jesus where you don't become resentful, but that you grow in love, where you're kind, where you're forgiving and gracious. And you try it on and it's actually better. <laughs> the experience of being resentful is miserable. The experience of being generous and free is wonderful. And it goes well until something goes wrong. And then when things go wrong, you go back to the baseline, which is, I tend to be when things go wrong, a resentful person. 
And what happens in this picture of there's, there's an old self, there's the natural self of, of who we have been, and there's a new self. Uh, the call is to, to work out the current situation as a renewed person. So allow the, the Holy Spirit to renew your mind. So, so now you catch yourself going back to the old architecture of here's who I blame, here's what I hate, uh, here's my worst fear. And we take this moment where something went get wrong and we think it in the old paradigm and there's no way to think yourself out of it by um, new Christian morals and principles. We're invited instead to, to catch yourself and, and step out of that old identity into the new. And so something went wrong, you need to face it and deal with it. And so the new paradigm is not the perfect happy ending where you pretend everything's okay. The new paradigm is where you work out life in this fallen world um, within a new architecture. So something goes wrong and you catch yourself being resentful the religious mindset then adds, I'm such a bad person, I'm falling short, shouldn't I be better? Shouldn't I be more like Jesus? And so now not only am I resentful, but I'm now feeling further alienated from God because this doesn't feel like the work of the Holy Spirit in me. And yet we're staying within the old architecture that says it's what I'm feeling that matters. It's, it's my ability to handle this situation that matters. And here's a situation where what I'm feeling and what I'm able to do is miserable. And so I need to go with the old principles, which is this is hopeless. We're called into a new paradigm where we're being renewed by the spirit of the mind where you can say, this is something I don't like. <laughs> This is something that, that discourages me. This is something I feel ill-equipped for. But wherever you are in your understanding of Christianity, what in that new architecture is gonna feed how you're thinking through this? And so you catch yourself thinking, uh, this is another example that my life is hopeless. I'm just fundamentally a failure. You catch yourself and say, well, this situation is hard and I don't know how I'm gonna face it, but, but that's true of the old reality of which I no longer existed. And so, so spending any time thinking about this being utterly hopeless and my being a complete failure is just not true to the new reality. And so I still have a problem. I still need to face it and figure it out. But I don't need to spend my time grounded in these things. And so what is true? What is true about the power of God and goodness and the possibility of change and the hard work that we're sometimes called to do? And once we um, find that we're able to default more and more to the new paradigm rather than the old, then we find increasing freedom in life. Then we find the fruitfulness that it goes from the inside uh, to the outside of who we are. It's a process. It's a, a long and a slow process. And sometimes there could be a major setback. Something happens bigger than you think, and then it just puts you in the old paradigm for an extended period. But within that, you need to have the theology that says it was never about what I did. Uh, but it's always been about God and his grace, uh, God who is not changed by this, the promises that are still true. And, and you have to exist with that until the spirit can, can bring that renewal, bring you into that situation where there's uh, repair, where you're in a new place. And so we are encouraged, um, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And so life with God life of true righteousness and holiness will require learning to think differently. And it's a thinking that comes depending on God.
I just want to say one thing about practices in terms of how do you live a life that's characterized by holiness? Because often in the church when we talk about that, we're, we think individualistically about our moral responsibilities. It's not that that's wrong. But how do you frame and construct a life where, where that new identity, that new reality becomes who you are? And, and the Bible does use the language of holy uh, for a number of things. And so uh, the story of creation in Genesis 1 ends in Genesis 2, and God sets apart one day in seven. It's a gift. You've got six days to do your work, uh, six days to do ordinary common things. Do them. But you have one day set aside to be a day of rest, of renewal uh, in your spirit. And since Jesus was raised from the dead, Christians have gathered on the first day of the week to sing and to pray and to break bread. And there's something there to say that, that the first day of the week is, it's not another day in the week. It's a day set apart. It's made holy, not because of what we choose to do in it, but because God has given us a day. And so, so on Saturday night, when you go to bed with a mindset that tomorrow is not an ordinary day, tomorrow is not the day to get more work done. Tomorrow is the day to rejoice at the generosity of God. So what do I do? And then that, the Christian guilt thing, do I have to go to church? Well, one answer is, no, you don't have to. Um, you have the freedom not to. You are not a bad human being for not going to church. You won't be punished for not going to church. You know, you stay home and then all of a sudden there's a building fire and you think the Lord is judging me because I chose not to go to church. You don't have to go to church. Um, but why wouldn't you? So, so, so the, the I don't feel like going, well, well feelings are ordinary. <laughs> this is a holy day. Why not do something that's more than just how you feel. And so, that, but then the other thing is, well, but there's the commandment, you need to go to church. And so if I don't go, I'm a bad person. Um, well, it, I mean, it's true that the Lord tells us to assemble. And so that's not entirely wrong, but you don't come because you have to. Um, a mindset, this new frame of, of mind being renewed by the Spirit, that if there's a day set apart where I could assemble with God's people, a people that are described as set apart by God's love. Um, that's Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has chosen us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. So we are holy and blameless by God's calling. We're a people set apart. So this is a gathering that is meant to be different from other gatherings. It's a holy gathering. It's a special gathering. And here are two things we do in this gathering. We read the scriptures, typically referred to as the Holy Bible. Lots of books, lots of them are good. Lots of magazine articles, lots of online information. We have one word of God given by the Spirit, blessed by the Spirit. And so our taking time at the beginning of the week to say, let's open this up and, and listen for what God can show us in the details. Uh, there's a holiness to it. This is a spiritual practice. And then we break bread, what we sometimes call holy communion. We have other communion, other fellowship where we have meals with people. But this is different. There, it's ordinary uh, food and beverage but it's set apart for a holy purpose. And so Jesus commands us to do this and promising he'll be with us. And so this is not just a religious ritual, but it's something that when we assemble with the eyes of faith to say today is not an ordinary day, but today is a day to remember the Lord. Today is a day to devote our time to remembering the promises as expounded in scripture, to meet with God whom we're no longer alienated from as we take these elements and remember what God did so that we could have fellowship with him. That mindset helps us to see 
And that's the thing that Ephesians is showing us. God is there. We just don't see him because of the hardness of heart. We're alienated. What we see is corruption. But the spirit works to open our eyes so that we see with new eyes. So when you come in here, it depends less on how excellently everything is done. <laughs> and it depends more on who invited you to come in terms of what this gathering can do as we then finish church and we go back into the ordinary world to do common things, to bathe, uh, to enjoy friendships, to watch TV, to work. All of those things are valuable. Go do them. But each week we begin by saying, but, but the world is not ordinary, it's extraordinary. And I'm not common, but I'm blessed by God. And the future is not hopeless, but it's eternal. And if those things are true, wouldn't we want to understand this more? Wouldn't we want to take hold of it? Wouldn't we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper and then go back into the world looking with renewed minds for what God is doing so that we can um, be those who engage the common as those who are actually doing eternal things in the ordinary daily life. That's what's possible. If your life is in God, you're invited to have that life. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, we do not fully have the eyes to see how this is a gathering of eternal significance. We come with the concerns of, of bills we have to pay and deadlines we have to meet and problems we're trying to work through and our stubbornness and inability to change. All of those things are true. Uh, and yet, Lord, there are things that are, are deeply true that have not penetrated our hearts. The, the resurrection of the dead, the life everlasting, the forgiveness of sins, the fact that you love us uh, in ways we can't comprehend. And so we'll do a spiritual work in us so that we would not be common, ordinary people, that we would not um, be like the grass of the field that withers today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, but we would be those who recognize you have made us eternal beings. And you've granted us life in its fullness and you've filled this world with good things for us to rejoice in. And you've um, kept us in this world with its problems to in some ways address and in some ways to endure. Um, but Lord, seeking to give you glory in all things. And so do that renewing work by the power of your spirit. Grant us that faith and that grace. And we thank you uh, that um, the gospel is so good that um, all of the years in the earth will not exhaust the riches, that there is so much grace and so much wonder that is available to us. Lord, bring it speedily into our lives and transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.